I'm Sarah Jean Watts, host of the Dance Teacher Diaries podcast, teacher, consultant, choreographer, and founder of The Movement Mentor. Quick reminder to head to themovementmentor.com backslash choreography and get your name on the list for next season's choreography. Even if you aren't exactly sure what your plans are yet, because there is a cap on the number of dancers and routines we can take through the summer. Now we have something a little different for episode six, Rapid Fire Q&A volume one because I think we're gonna need to do this every so often to clear up some of the gathering questions out there. But like I said at the end of the last two weeks episodes, part one and two about feeling like competition results aren't fair, uh, my goal today is to spend just a couple minutes answering each one of these questions. If there is a topic or question I talk about that you wanna hear more about, please message us. I have a spreadsheet of topics that I want to discuss, but I'm also, interested in what you guys want to hear about and that is the best way to let us know so it helps us at dance teacher diaries and the movement mentor thank you for sending those in for writing reviews rating all of it new week new cover art this time we have kira barsh and kelsey nolden in the beginning pose of their little jazz duet i actually choreographed this routine it's called tea party and my costume company bar and so designed and created those costumes that um you can't tell in the picture but they have these giant bows in the chest and they are pretty stinking cute uh, but these girls just won first place at nationals this past weekend it's all-star so this is their nationals time and i think uh, kira's mom Allie posted that they had six total first place finishes this season so congratulations to kira and kelsey for a great job and for continuing to show up and show out right through the end of the season uh, they both even had solos also that i worked with them on but i'm sure they will show up a little bit later on their own disclaimer this podcast talks in terms of real life situations we don't ever intend to be overly harsh or critical, but we aren't going to avoid talking about issues and shortcomings. The following opinions are just that, an opinion that others are free to disagree with and may not reflect everyone's exact experiences. Please keep in mind, time restrictions also mean the entire context or full explanation probably won't be shared. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of anyone Sarah Jean Watts LLC works with and are intended for general knowledge. Everything we discuss here is meant to be constructive, but honest. All right, it's go time. Time to get started with the questions. I think there's about 15 that I'm gonna to try to get through today. So first one, wearing underwear on stage or going commando? And if you don't know what that means, commando means no underwear. So I think it's pretty common for studios to tell dancers no underwear in your dance costumes, your tights are your underwear, that kind of thing so that they're not sticking out. This is especially, especially for younger dancers. I think when you're older, you pay attention to this more on your own. Like rarely do I see a 13 year old who has no idea that their underwear is showing. But the when little girls, you know, they if you have they have the bigger cotton underwear and then it kind of sticks out from under their leotard or under their costume and stuff like that. But my answer is really I think it depends on the costume, right? So tights are your underwear if you're wearing tights. You might not necessarily be wearing them. So that doesn't matter in that case. And then also I think just the cut of the leotard, something that's a little bit more high cut, lower cut like a bike tart style. I think generally if you can, if there's the potential that you could see the underwear, it would be a no. And then of course there's costumes with pants. So loose fitting baggy pants that where you wouldn't see an underwear line or most 
hip-hop costumes that have pants or anything made out of denim or if you're doing jeans for a tap routine or whatever I certainly am not going without underwear and a tap routine or sorry (laughs) taps are relevant about the underwear I certainly am not wearing on jeans without underwear Uh, but I also probably wouldn't put tights on under my jeans if I didn't have to either so I think it's a case-by-case basis And if there's the possibility that the underwear will be seen, then don't wear them. On the other hand, it's not the 80s or even the 90s anymore. We have lots of underwear options. So there are like the laser cut ones. Um, That's what they call them, right? Laser cut where that's what most of mine are because I wear predominantly leggings for a living as a teacher, dance teacher, right? So they don't really show a line. They're like that smooth, just spandexy type fabric. And I have actually numerous pairs. I think mine are from Victoria's Secret, but you could find these in other places now, especially with online shopping. You could find them anywhere. But they're like nude mesh or black mesh or whatever. So basically, the underwear part of it is as minimal as possible and inconsequential, but you get that cotton fabric lining. Uh, so that would be the case. And when it comes to boys, so I was just talking about girls, but when it comes to boys, again, costume dependent, I think most traditionally male-looking costumes out there nowadays are like underwear safe and a lot of times boys will be wearing a dance belt similar to or same as a jockstrap for the support when they're dancing so then kind of work around that tights or no tights so (laughs) talking about underwear let's talk about tights this is an ancient debate in the dance community Uh, i don't i think it's not a yes or a no Now, this is a polarizing topic. There are some people that hold very strongly to the reasons why we wear tights in dance. And some people who are like, ugh, tights is old school. I don't want anything to do with that. I think most people land in the middle and say I think it depends on the situation. So what did I throw down here? Some of the the common reasons I find for people who say yes is for the support in the legs. Obviously, it's like a tight-fitting fabric around the legs, so some type of support in there. For the sake of modesty and just not having leotards with body parts hanging out of them, if that is a concern for you, tights certainly keep everything more modest. And also the argument for the same toned leg line, so we get more uniformity um, if we're all in generally like the same tone on the legs. But with today's pushing for more diversity, I don't know if that if the skin tone is so much of it, I might certainly see the argument for a continued leg line. So, you know, nude tights of a dancer's skin tone to match the line of a nude shoe, again, in the dancer's skin tone, which they are finally making more of in recent years, or black with black, so on and so forth. What else did I write? Maybe style or theme coverage of costume shoe choice. So yes, just talked about that. I think tights also depends on the style of choreography that you're doing. I would certainly expect to see fewer to no dancers wearing tights in something that is modern dance or contemporary based, as it is kind of almost a pushback against those types of rigid forms. So I wouldn't think twice about having no tights on in a modern or contemporary dance. For me, again, considering those other things, hopefully we're not like flashing the world when we do it. And ballet may or may not have them, a very traditional ballet. Uh, I could see tights and then, again, continuing the line with the shoes or if you have point shoes on. But contemporary ballet, again, see it very often nowadays without any tights on. 
And then there's Broadway. You may be in nude fishnets. You may be in black fishnets. Uh, if you look closely at a lot of performers like J-Lo, Beyonce, they usually have on some type of nude fishnet as well. So it gives the illusion based on the stage environment that there's nothing on your legs when there is. And then there are just certain costumes, choreography, or stylistic choices that call for like a black fishnet for whatever reason. Or black tights. The only trouble with black tights sometimes is that they... Whereas fishnets, I mean, you will see a gradient of shading in a fishnet because it's less stretched around your body at the ankle and more at the thigh, right? And you, But that's the exact same problem you have in black tights. And I think because fishnets are net, they disguise that a little bit more and you actually end up with a more even tone across the legs than black tights where I will often see that they're not pulled up evenly. So it's not just that you have more darkness towards the ankle where they're less stretched but like if you pull up one leg right and then you do the little scooch (laughs) scooch up the thigh on this side you don't do it quite much on this side or you know they you pull the tights up and then you don't like re-go back like old school stocking style and kind of try to smooth and even out the fabric over your leg you can see a delineation towards the the thighs to the hips of where the color gets significantly more sheer or where it's like kind of splotchy because there are parts where the tights were pulled more over the legs and the other stuff like that. I find that that is more noticeable in solid black tights and which is why I personally favor if you're going to go black I favor black fishnets over black tights but that is my preference and then of course black shoes go with black tights fishnet or solid unless it is a character choice to have black shoes without black tights so I mean and that could be anything like literally if the costume is some type of character who would in real life wear like like some type of black footwear like you wouldn't need fishnets with that I wouldn't ask anyone doing step in time to be in black shoes and fishnets to speak (laughs) that doesn't make sense next up do acro skills take you out of novice and by acro skills we're talking about aerials front walkovers back walkovers etc I would say not necessarily because so here I think that is a common like aerials is a common thing where it might show up in a novice routine and then people say that's not novice so they don't belong there if they can do an aerial yes and no now if that aerial is paired with a lot of other higher quality dance movement then okay but just because you have acro skills doesn't mean that the movement quality is there or the competition experience Uh, you may just have a few good gymnastic or tumbling tricks up your sleeve but in terms of actual dance content or technique or transitions or presence it is not intermediate or advanced it is in fact quite novice so I don't think just having acro skills alone automatically bumps you up in a category it's what's surrounding those skills that is a better judge of the level should we be present to watch all the other dancers from our studio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the few benefits of the COVID style block scheduling that many of us lived through is that everybody basically had to be there for each other. So it was probably the most supportive competition environment in that sense, unless you had tons of quick changes and then you were just like racing back and forth and you never got to see anything anyway. But I think for a lot of people and certainly audience members, so parents, in the audience that were allowed to come in person got to see the entirety of the studio's work and not just the few dances that their kid is in so i think that was one of the benefits and it's certainly beneficial to team cohesion it creates a sense of community among the dancers 
among the parents. Everybody is supportive to each other. You know, you can cheer and clap and everything for the other dancers. Now, to be practical, there can be such a wide variety in scheduling that having everyone be there for every single dance might not be an option, uh, especially if we're talking about over the course of three or four days, like competitions that are Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Some of them even now, especially if there's a convention attached, have a Thursday on them. So I don't think that's reasonable to be there for everything. And it also depends on a couple other things like travel time to the venue and how big your studio is. If you have 30 routines, 20, 30 routines, something like that, versus 40, 50 routines, uh, you, uh, how can you be there for, the, for every one of those? But final point being, if I had to pick one, don't come at me for this, but if I had, if somebody said you must, must, must pick one, then I would go with just this. It feels better on stage to have the support of the audience. So as much support as you can give dancers from your studio, the better. Next one, what are titles? Uh (laughs) This, we knew this was coming. What are titles? I'm going to answer this from the standpoint of traditional studio competitions because this is where you see this award. By traditional, I was kind of put that in quotes, I mean not scholastic or school associated, not all-star, but like a a more, that's why I'm saying traditional instead of normal because I don't think one is more normal than the other, just traditional studio structure competitions. Get what I'm saying? (laughs) This is usually a paid entry so you pay an entry fee to for all your groups and you pay an entry fee for your solos and everything else. And then most of the time there is an, an option to do an additional paid entry. So you have to pay more money on top of that to be considered for a title among other soloists. So you wouldn't pay additional for your group to be in. It's a, it's a solo driven award. And these usually come with extra types of things like extra trophies, extra plaques, a sash, a crown, all that other kind of stuff mention on the website things like that some do have scholarships associated with them as well so it isn't necessarily just about getting the extra crown or whatever but you might get a scholarship either a scholastic one or for a different dance event something like that and then titles also have so it's a different so what's the point of doing it at all (laughs) it's a different adjudication so besides the fact that you get to get a little more recognition of a different kind and you get a little bit more stuff swag whatever you want to call it and you might get a scholarship depending you are adjudicated on usually differ a different set of standards so in the standard competition scoring sheet but it's mostly digital now we have anywhere between you know 40 to 60 somewhere around their family the bulk of your points coming from technique and then there will be other breakdowns depends on the competition like execution choreography, performance, costuming, stuff like that. But the bulk of the points comes from technique. And usually when you switch to the title adjudication, then the bulk of the points, the higher weight, I'm saying, is going to the performance aspect, the the, you know, the way that you portray the character on stage or the emoting or you know the showmanship, that kind of thing, and slightly less to technique. It's not like technique shoots way down, but it is slightly less than it was in the more like standard competition for solos. So that is kind of, in a nutshell, what it is. And some organizationals do, or organizationals, organizations do additional steps. So there may be an interview process that happens either on stage or off stage. There are sometimes 
improv sections where you have to do your solo but you also do have to do an improv or like compulsory stuff that takes it way back old school uh having compulsory movements and things like that which is still the case in gymnastics and other things but anyway you may have other stuff like that for example dance masters of america has some of those stipulations there's an interview process to their title and things like that so in that sense it's kind of Uh, a little bit of like the pageant world inside the dance world when those are the other factors involved and like for dma sometimes that is a gateway to other titles like you win one at like a regional then you can go for like a higher more encompassing title stuff like that but most of the time these days the most common situation i encounter is you pay an additional entry fee and your solo will not only be adjudicated in the normal way for the normal awards and overalls, but it will also be additionally adjudicated on the basis of whatever the changing point criteria is. And then you will get, you know, kind of an extra little outfit, extra recognition. That's titles. How long should a dance be? Okay, that depends. Um, Of course, on some obvious things, is it a solo? Is it a small group, a large group, a production, a line? So usually the larger the group, the longer the the dance would be just because of the number of people you have. And certainly if you have entrances and exits and certainly if you have props or you're doing like this whole scenery setup thing like that, it becomes more of like a mini show and things push towards six, seven, eight minutes um, versus solos and small groups that tend to be shorter. Now, let me talk about it in terms of maybe like solos i think because probably people would be more asking about solos or maybe just traditional small or large groups i get wanting to be on stage for a good amount of time because you went through the work right you paid for the costume you paid the entry fees you showed up so you don't want to be on and off stage in a heartbeat and be like oh didn't even really get to see him but sometimes the longer it goes on the more opportunity you're giving to show mistakes or fatigue So I tend to try to err on the side of shorter rather than longer for those reasons. And length also depends on not just the size of the group, but the story being told, uh, the level of intensity of the choreography. So if it is extremely athletic and go, 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 and it's just one thing after another, then a little bit of shorter might be better just for stamina purposes. But there are certain types of, let me just pick the easiest category, modern pieces, right? Where there's there's a bigger thing happening at a less intense pace and so it's kind of unfolding over a longer length of time now it's a balancing act because if it's too short then you won't show enough to please the judges if it's too long then your moves might start to get repetitive again you show that you're tired heaven forbid people actually get bored watching it this is i say this in every episode this is a real talk podcast so i'm going to talk real so please don't get offended. But again, that's I say it every episode because it's kind of one of the points of the podcast. Uh, do do I get bored watching some solos? Yep. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody in the audience does. And, and I watch dance for a living. And so I, I love it. And I still get bored watching. There have been lots of times where I've said either out loud in my home or like in my mind somewhere. I certainly wouldn't say it out loud in the venue, but just like, oh, I wish you would have cut this song shorter. And it's hard because I've been in situations where people go, can we make it this length? And I'm like, well, I'm not the music doesn't say so because I don't do like random fade out cuts. Like I want it to have a beginning and a build and like, you know, and uh, uh, 
what's it like a climax like a pinnacle and then a resolution so i want that in the music too and so there's not always a way to cut a song for any length uh but aside from that sometimes i'll be hearing whole songs being used or close to all of them like two minutes and 45 seconds on a solo is a really long time so I think you got to find the sweet spot between am I showing enough to, to give the overall idea, to show a demonstration of my ability? Is this the right length to be entertaining? Can I get through either an actual story or a movement story line in this amount of time? And then when am I just hanging out here for the sake of being out here and I've said all I need to say, literally or figuratively or whatever. Not Well, probably not literally, but, <laughs> but figuratively, movement-wise, whatever. And, um, and so it's, it's time to just wrap it up before I start just showing opportunities to take points away from me. So I wrote down here, though, some general guideline times that I use. The more novice the dancer or group, the shorter the dance should be. They have less of a skill base, too. So you don't even have that much to draw from to keep it going on and on and on. And I think it will be cleaner and more effective and more entertaining and more energetic if you keep it short. And also I wrote the younger the dancer or group, the shorter the routine for very similar reasons. And then just extra time guidelines, solos. For a novice solo, I would say 130 to 150 is a sweet spot for me. Intermediate, one minute and 45 seconds to 215. And then advanced, two to 245. But again, consider everything I said above. And when all else fails, do whatever you want. But I think less is more lots of the time. What is, oh, this is, I, it's, it's like I never saw these before, but I have seen these before and I have written about them, but it just is refreshing my mind when I read it. What is the average pay for a dance teacher at competitions? Hot topic. Okay. There are no set rules uh, in this category and you will find a wide variety of opinions. If you are in dance teacher groups, I'm sure you have read posts with a lot of these opinions too. Uh, different perspectives coming from dance teachers coming from studio owners and I see both sides of the situation but I'm gonna elaborate more as we go here the most common situations that you will find are that teachers are either unpaid for competitions or that they are paid by the day or that they are paid by the hour and the wage hourly wage would often be significantly less than their teaching wage and that's, uh, and I do think that makes sense in that there is a little bit, I can't go down this rabbit hole right now, but when you pay a teacher, it is usually an hourly wage based on the hours that they're in the classroom with the physical students. But there is tons of work that happens getting ready for that hour that you're not on the technical clock for, but is somehow rolling into your hourly pay. And I think that needs to be considered and compensated for. So that's why I can't get too deep into that right now. But I do think because there is less of that preparation work going into competition day and it's more like cleaning and coaching and kind of getting everybody ready. And it's, it's work, but I don't know if it's you know necessarily the same level of work if we're going to roll all those other responsibilities into our normally hour, normal hourly wage, right? But so basically my opinion is work is work and, and teachers love their jobs, whether you're a dance teacher or a school teacher or whatever, you love your job and you would do everything you could for your kids no matter what but it's still work and you still deserve to be paid for work. So my opinion is dance teachers should be paid for their time at competitions. They are on the job. 
parents. So I just wrote a couple notes here. Parents, if you want to know if that's the case at your studio, you should ask. Uh, and I don't mean in a rude way, but just, you know, know if your teachers are getting compensated at competitions and then advocate that for that if they're not. And it's something that you really believe in. But also just know that so that if they're not, maybe ease up on the pressure a little bit <laughs> on what you're expecting them to do. Uh, just throwing it out there. Okay. For teachers, have like more open conversations. Facebook groups and stuff like that have certainly allowed us to do that. People post about what they're making and their wages and things like that. But open conversations about what you're making, about compensation, and finding out what the averages around you or the averages that you can advocate for yourself and each other a little bit better. But be reasonable, right? Like when I ask for people to advocate for things and like, but do it with a reason. Do it from the mindset that there is a business end to handle and there's only so much money and like you got to be well-rounded about your approach. And for studio owners, evaluate your spending to cover this or add a competition fee that covers it so that your team members pay a little bit more but your teachers get paid. Next one, how should I warm up before I dance? Your warm-up should be shorter than your pre-class or in-class warm-up, mostly just because of scheduling reasons and also because you're probably in a smaller space you might have dedicated warm-up space you might not you could be in a back corner of a room or a hallway for example so you don't have that much space or much time in the day or, or much time once you get into the venue right sometimes if you're especially if you're going earlier on in the competition day there's not much time between when they open the doors and when you have to be ready to go so it would probably be shorter than your more normal warm-up that you're used to doing I teach the phases of warm-up as part of my standard curriculum. So do this uh, for teachers out there. Teach your kids what a warm-up consists of, what it looks like, and do it often and reiterate it and remind and encourage and look for it at competitions and support it. And teachers or SOs who are building the schedule, build that in. If you're a parent, try to put that in your schedule. I know that parents have to do a lot on competition weekends in terms of getting kids ready, being in the right place, and it's not quite your element most of the time, and there's hair and makeup and packing and all that stuff to be done. So there's a lot. Traveling, and they, they, they're children, and they're people, so you have to feed them <laughs> and everything else. And you know, you have, you have to be the one that wakes up, up in the morning. I don't, and they don't want to wake up in the morning. Like, I get it. There's a lot. But try to factor in warm-up time, too, so that dancer's body can be ready before they go on stage. So I'm going to talk a smidge more about this. Base your warm-up on how much time that you have. The more time, the more you can do. So if you do have a little bit more time, add some type of bar work, some abbreviated bar or a little bit of yoga, some sun salutations, a couple Pilates sequences. And if you can't, then, okay, skip that stuff. But you'll see... I've told dancers in the past, you see that some of the studios are coming really like, oh, that studio is really great. And I love their dancing and their dancers look really good. And you kind of, if you pay attention, you'll find those people doing really nice warm-ups for themselves in back corners and in hallways. And they, I've seen them with headphones on giving themselves a bar. They're mentally and physically preparing themselves for the active performance and competing. And athletes do the same thing, right? I mean, it's a competition, so you will find real, you know, top level or elite level or any type of athlete hopefully should be getting themselves quote unquote in the zone and preparing themselves before they compete. General breakdown, super quick without explaining it because that's not the purpose here. General breakdown of an effective warm-up has some cardio, some muscle activation, so little, like light calisthenic type exercises that 
get you working against your body weight. An active stretch where things keep moving. We don't want to do static stretching before we perform. And then do some things that are choreography specific. So if you are have if you have a routine or a set of routines that's very isolation heavy, pay attention to that. If you need a lot of fluidity in this upcoming movement, do a little bit more of that. Maybe you need more torso circling, more cat cow. And then you know, skill specific. So jumps, turns, flexibility tricks, acro, leg holds, make sure you run those things that you would need to execute on stage as well. New question. Do I need those warm-up boots? So also warm-up related. And I'm assuming this refers to the block warm-up booties. There are a bunch of off brands as well, and I'm sure by now most dance brands have them. But I think at the very like first blow up of them, they were block, I'm pretty sure. I do love block shoes. So if anyone from block is listening, I like your shoes in general. They're some of my favorite dance shoes. Uh, but they they become quite trendy. They're dying down a smidge a little bit now, but for a while, like everybody had them. The warm up booties are meant to keep your feet and ankles warm before and then after an actual warm up. So obviously just wearing these booties does not immediately mean that your feet and ankles are warm and ready, but as you know, meant to have some layers on, especially in colder venues, keep you warm beforehand. Once you do a full warm up, you got to kind of try to retain some of that heat and that fluidity and mobility that you've put into your system. So then you have the boots on for that as well. So that's the intended purpose of them. Uh, I, a lot of people now just wear them as they're in and out of competition shoes or whatever so you know use them how you will so point being I don't think that you need them uh but there's more than one reason you may want them you may want them to create and sustain a more effective warm-up you might just want them because you think you're cute they're cute and you like wearing them instead of wearing Uggs or instead of wearing slides or instead of wearing slippers or whatever what the main takeaway I think from this from the previous one actually about warming up and also about these warm-up boots is that you need to treat your body on competition day like a piece of sensitive equipment. What you put in it, how you fuel it, the way that you prepare it, the way that you recover it um, in between routines and the way that you cover it, recover it at the end of the long day and especially if there's another one. So being more considerate about everything surrounding the instrument that we are about to use on stage, which I think your body is an instrument of art. Should we listen to critiques as a group and do you send them to parents? Well, I preview them first and I recommend the same. One, because they can touch on something that might be sensitive to a dancer and the judge had no idea for whatever reason. So I just like to preview it for that first. And also because it might require context or background information that is necessary to interpret what's being said correctly. And I think that goes both if I'm listening to listening to it in a group with dancers I'm present I'm there physically to present that context or background information for them if the conversation should come up but if you just send them with them on their own or the parents just get them directly I would preview them to check that there isn't something like that in there where they won't understand it without that information I don't mean that they need like this arsenal of technique information I think if you've listened to enough critiques, you know what I'm talking about. And we as teachers, and this is important to know for parents as well, the reality is there is a concern. Here, here's some, something honest for you. There is an honest concern that when people, dancers or 
parents review critiques without a teacher present or without like the teacher filter on it, that you will take a correction or comment at either face value or interpret it too literally and then either want to make immediate changes or if it's a group routine, believe that somebody else is the cause of a score or something like that, that it just will be interpreted incorrectly or taken too far. And we don't want that to happen. So that is a real concern, I think, that a lot of us teachers have about releasing critiques. So preview it first. If we're gonna review them in class, which I usually do at least some of them, spend class time on the most value-packed ones if you're short on time. You may have multiple hours in rehearsal and you can listen to every single one and there's something to gain from each one. And Or you can, you know, if it's a video critique, you can watch it back and then while one judge talks then the next judge like okay this time while you listen to that judge let's look at this part of the routine and the next time we're going to change everybody stop looking at yourself this time and start looking at the overall group formations and stuff like that so having the dancers watch the routine from a different viewpoint which is also about cleaning routines and effective coaching that may have nothing to do with judges critiques different topic different day but If you're limited on time, you don't have all the time in the world, I will sometimes have only done like one of them. Like I've already listened to them, so I'm gonna pick the one that has I think the most valuable information to give for what I want from the dancers at this moment. So we're only gonna listen to that one. So watch fewer of the videos, summarize them. If it's like paper critiques, like it's still common in All-Star to not have audio or video critiques and just get like a judging score sheet, scholastic, same thing, like a paper score sheet. Then if we don't go through every single one, then I'll summarize or I'll kind of translate what they were getting at to something that makes sense for my dancer or that they can absorb at their age. All right, now giving them to parents. For groups, I would recommend against it. For kind of what I already said, like we're, we don't want people to, it's, there's a good and a bad because there's value in dancers and parents hearing outside people give corrections that we give in the classroom. Either the same ones that we give. So it's like, yes, hallelujah, it's not just me saying it. Please listen to everybody else saying the same thing. Or that they say it in a different way and that might click with somebody differently, so on and so forth. So there is value to it, but... There's danger in having people kind of quote unquote witch hunt through the critique and start picking out other people's faults and worrying about other people's business when you should be focused on your own. So if I would err on the side of not giving out group critiques. And I think also just if you happen to be one of the students who gets a critique in a group, there's some like safety in listening to it amongst your team but when it's just kind of disseminated out that's a very vulnerable place to be but for solos I think it depends on the benefit like would it benefit the growth or progress of the dancer if the dancer and parent had that to listen back to and in that case sure I think they should have it hear somebody else say something Um, but again I think it depends on what's even said in the critique whether or not it would be beneficial which is again why I preview them Another question about solos. I can't get a certain part of my solo. Should I take it out? Well, the shortest answer I can give you is yes. There's a a plan A, which is like ideally what you wanted or what your choreographer or teacher wanted. Plan A looks like this. Then we often have a backup plan B if something about A is not working the way we want. And I think I've said this before in the podcast, sometimes there's a plan C, sometimes there's a secret plan C or D (laughs) that we're like not going to tell anybody about until the last possible moment that we have to because we don't want 
anybody to aim lower and like go, well, so uh, let me finish what I'm saying. There's a plan A for goals. There's a backup plan B on certain skills, stuff like that. If you're not getting something truly, it shouldn't stay in your solo because your solo is supposed to be a demonstration of the best of what you're bringing to the table. So we're not going to literally try to highlight weaknesses. That would not be effective in terms of competition scoring. But we can't edit out everything that we struggle with, like the dance elements. It's like you start taking away those transitions, that texture. You may water it down so much because you are struggling with or don't want to work on these certain types of things that it just becomes like a, a paint by number or color by number, if you know what that means, where it's like a coloring book and the picture is divided up with like these really hard, solid black lines and like it's color all the number one's red, right? And so it gets a little bit too rigid if we don't have some of that stuff in there. In terms of dance moments, texture, in terms of tricks, if you are really struggling to get a trick or skill, I hate sometimes calling it tricks, but sometimes it is just tricks and I wanna leave it at that, but skills. If you're really struggling to get a skill, consider a plan B version of that or editing it out in some way because if we demonstrate what we can't do, the judges can't unsee it. They can't pretend that they didn't see you fall out of that or see you not hit it as well as it's supposed to be. So my short answer is yes. My long answer is maybe start your solo with a growth mindset where you don't want it to be got it, nailed it, easy as pie on day one. We want to push ourselves a little bit. So I guess look at your timeline and go, how far into this are we? Should you change something that you can't get in your solo one month in? Nope, definitely not. That's what I, that's the key distinction I'll make here. Should I change something in my, I can't get a certain part of my solo, should I take it out? Yes, if you're competing in the next week or two, week, and there's just like, it's just not happening. That's why there's a plan B that you might know about or you might not, so ask your teacher or coach. But should you start editing all kinds of things out of your solo that don't look good in the initial stages? No, you should work for it and work towards getting it. And then as it gets closer and closer, start taking a look at some of these things and going, how close am I to being where I need to be? Next one, how do you sew in hair pieces? Oh, this will be good. This will be an easy one for me to answer. People don't sew in hair pieces that often, I don't find, but if you want to sew it in, if it's heavy or lopsided, odd shape, something that doesn't easily bobby pin in, you might want to sew that in. And you can just use a plastic craft needle. They have blunt ends and they're flexible. And then any type of thin yarn or even embroidery thread that matches your hair color. And so you just thread the embroidery thread on a little plastic needle and then kind of weave it in and out depending on what it is. And there you go, sewn in. Careful about that when you have quick changes though. I threw a little extra note in here, just food for thought. This is not about sewing in hair pieces, but secure your hair pieces with pins based on the hair piece. This is just a PSA, a public service announcement for me. Lots of times dancers or parents don't know what they don't know, but you need the tools of the trade. So only having one type of bobby pin is probably not enough. Considering you did, I mean, you only got one dance and it has a headband here. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean. Take it how it goes. But there's regular straight types of bobby pins. There are the curved ones. There are like the U-shaped hair pins. 
Um, there are spin pins. There are the ones that, like the, the pins that snap. There are the alligator clips. There's different pins for different reasons, and they're useful in different situations. Like, if you have a headband that has any type of raised net texture to it, so it's not like a flat fabric headband, but any headband that has some volume to it or size, a straight pin will just boing, slide right out of there, like the normal straight bobby pin with the ridges on one side. That's not going to hold that in. You might need to use this big bend snap kind and, you know, under your bun or wherever the kind you where, you know, you slide them in and then you bend the metal and it snaps around it. Those hold that kind of thing a little bit better. And I could go on and on with examples, but that's not for now. So I'm supposed to be answering short, which I know I'm kind of doing and kind of not. I have two more though. Two more questions. All right. How do nationals work? Can anybody go or do you need a certain score at regionals? Once upon a time, you needed to qualify at regionals to go to nationals. I would say, what should I say? I'm just going to, I'm throwing out a statistic I'm making up on the spot. So what should I say? 9 times out of 10, 90%, 95, 99. That's not the deal anymore. Uh, Usually nowadays, it's a pay-to-play type situation. So if you pay the entry fees, you go to the nationals. Dance competitions, uh, like companies that run competitions, so the name of the competition, every one of them has a nationals in most cases. So you can go to any number of national events. And a lot of the companies, to meet the demand, have more than one national. So more than one place that you can go to, like Legacy Dance Competition, for example, they have several nationals in different locations. So notably, there are some nationals that are well, it's not even the Nationals. Like, the Dance Awards is a competition, but it's not a competition. I do really like that about that structure. But even now, they have a Vegas and an Orlando. Uh, they used to just have one, but now they have two. But, for example, like, UDA, NDA for Scholastic. And then there's Worlds and Summit for All-Star. These, these are Varsity-owned things. Varsity owns a lot of things. You might not know that they own. But Varsity owns a lot of things. But those are kind of, like, in the school associated high school college dance team world uda nda those are going to be like your bread and butter nationals there aren't as many the traditional studio world it's like open free market right there's like thousands when you go to all-star and scholastic it narrows down quite a bit it's still growing there's still more than one option but uda nda um, are really popular for nationals among high school and college teams and then the summit and worlds for all-star but there's more than one of those too. So, and oh, my point being that for a traditional studio sense, you can just register and go to a nationals event. Sometimes just simply by having gone to their regionals, and doesn't matter what your score is. And nowadays, I think a lot of times because they just want a lot of entries, you don't even have to have gone to their regionals to be able to go to their nationals. But that being said, Scholastic and All-Star is not necessarily the same. Don't assume that it's the same and everybody can just go there. Sometimes you need a bid, which I will explain in a whole separate episode about how that kind of scoring works. Okay, last question. What do you think about dancers not showing up before competition? Well, I don't think it's good. (laughs) I don't like it. Outside of extreme circumstances, because those are always readily available exceptions, and specific predetermined conflicts. Now, just because something is pre-disclosed or pre-communicated doesn't mean that it's a good reason to miss. (laughs) I'm not saying that. Just saying there are some reasons 
planned way in advance that you can't be there. Like, let's say it's the Wednesday before you're going to, you're going to compete this weekend. It's the Wednesday night before, and you're supposed to be at class or rehearsal or whatever. And there is something that everybody has known is coming that you won't be there for. Outside of those situations, it is my standing policy and has been when I, you know, directed at studios before is that you need to be in class and rehearsal the week of competition at a minimum. I have also read about some studio policies where they say two weeks is what they have. And I'm sure it varies even more than that. But one to two weeks prior, you are required to attend all classes and rehearsals. And this is important because, first of all, as the dancer themselves, you need to be preparing yourself with the proper training and the proper mental and physical preparation for the competition weekend so that you feel confident and ready to go into that weekend as your best self. In addition, as a team member, you need to be there for your team. We can't just the week of be like, well, I will be there for rehearsals, but I'm skipping all tech. You show up to your tech class because you need it. That's part of your dance training. It's not just learning dances to regurgitate them on stage. There's a bigger picture here. So showing up to your tech classes, also showing up to your rehearsals, not only for you, but for your team, because your team needs to know that they can depend on you to be there. You're an integral part of the way it functions. There are probably lifts that involve certain people, formation changes, spacing, everything. It's important that everybody's there for this final preparation of the big picture before we go compete it and ask someone to literally judge and score it and tell us what was good about it, what was great, what they loved, what they didn't, all that jazz. Plus, it gets hard because, you know, if you get sick or injured and you're like, you know, I might be better by competition time. But again, I kind of held back to that one rule standard because if there's a good chance that you might not be with us this weekend, this week is our last opportunity to fix it so that everybody else on the team knows what they're doing before we get to competition weekend. It sucks to reblock in a hallway somewhere. Now, sometimes it happens and it's out of anyone's control, and I get that. But if we foresaw this coming and we did not take the opportunity to reblock when we had time on our side during the week, then you're trying to struggle last second to figure this out and it's stressful on everybody. And there's, there may or may not be space to do it, there may or may not be time to do it. Sections or lifts or all kinds of stuff may need to change or come out, partner work, things like that. So better to have resolved it with more time on your side than to be scrambling to figure it out the day of, for sure. And hopefully if you are a dancer or parent who never thought about it that way, then that just filled you in a little bit on what we're thinking as teachers, as directors, studio owners, as other members on the team. Like we want to go into the weekend as confident and as prepared as we can be. That's it for questions. I have no idea, again, I have no idea what the time is. I have no timer going. I hope the episode is not insanely long. I don't want to split this one up again. In our next episode, we're actually going to take a break for a bit from the competition talk and discuss some important points for program directors and coaches to plan, organize, consider, communicate when they are preparing for their audition and tryout process and for the creation of new teams in the upcoming season. And for dancers and parents, it can actually be helpful to hear a little bit about the back end of this and what goes into developing a program for dancers, plus some things that you know you may wanna consider in choosing a program for yourself. So please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram so you can join us for that convo and so that you can see more behind the scenes about what we have coming up in spring. 
As always, DM your questions and topic suggestions to us on Instagram at Dance Teacher Diaries or at The Movement Mentor and on Facebook at The Movement Mentor Official. And you can visit us on our website at themovementmentor.com. Thank you for listening and subscribing to this podcast. And remember, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Oh, 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 oh,